0: When I was a a child and in Little League, um, I was never the best athlete in my family. Uh, My brothers got the athletic genes. My older brother was a a baseball player, uh, very good. He was good at basketball as well, but he was stronger at baseball. And my younger brother was the basketball player and uh, just a natural athlete and the wrestler. I was the intellectual kid who was outside playing with sticks and sword fighting imaginary enemies and everything else. But nevertheless, I tried my best at sports um, and tried my best in baseball. And I remember as we were trying to, uh, my dad was coaching me, and and, and in my different uh, coaching, uh, I would go to workshops and other things, and we were talking about swinging and hitting the ball in baseball. Something that they repeatedly taught me was the necessary, it was necessary to swing through the ball. At the different stages, they teach you the different motions of of batting as you get your proper stance, you get your proper grip, you have the bat, and they teach you the different stages of leaning back, stepping forward, hitting and swinging. And we would go through this routine of one, two, three, four, over and over and over again. But it's only when you put the entire thing together and you learn to swing through the ball that you have any kind of power that you see beautiful swings that are iconic, like Ken Griffey Jr.'s and others. But if you aren't careful, it'll be easy for you to just simply swat at the ball and hit the ball where it is. And when you do that, you have no power. Instead, you have to swing past the ball and through the ball. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything that I'm talking about this morning? It's easy for us, oftentimes, when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to understand it in the stages that we talk about it and never actually see the full motion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe like me, you grew up and you had to first understand the significance of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was crucified to accomplish our forgiveness. He paid the price for our sin that we might be forgiven. And then we get to the point where we move beyond where it's not just enough that we be forgiven, but we also need the grace to live the life that Jesus came to accomplish and purchase for us. And that's the purpose of the resurrection, that Jesus didn't just merely die for our sins. He was raised to new life as a promise for our salvation. And so often, if you are like me, as you have grown up in the church, we get through Holy Week, we get through Good Friday and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we get to Easter, we celebrate Easter, and then we just fall off. And we don't finish the story. Instead, for whatever number of reasons, we move on because life gets busy and the very next thing is we begin focusing on the events of life like Mother's Day, graduations, beginning of summer, end of school, all of these different things. And the traditional beauty of the church calendar that reminds us of the full story of the gospel of Jesus Christ gets swept by the wayside. Not to say that we shouldn't love our mothers and our fathers. We shouldn't honor them and we shouldn't understand what the Bible has to think about. But think about this. How many over your lifetime in the church, how many Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons have you heard? But then compare that to how many Ascension Day sermons have you ever heard? You see, the ascension of Jesus Christ is essential to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Dr. Albert Moeller, in his book on the Apostles' Creed, says this, Without the ascension of Jesus, the gospel possesses no present power. If we don't see and understand that the ascension of Jesus Christ is an essential part of the gospel, we miss the power of the gospel in our lives we have the tendency then to think about the gospel as good news for that lost person that I used to be, as good news for that lost person out in the world. And we don't understand that the gospel was good news for that person that was outside of Jesus Christ at some point in our past. But the gospel is good news for you and for me today, even as we are adopted into Jesus's family. And so this morning, On what is Ascension Sunday, we are going to ask ourselves and look at the ascension of Jesus Christ that we might see how the ascension is essential for our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. We're going to use this passage of Scripture kind of like our ground, our foundation, that we're going to launch out into other areas of Scripture that we might come to know and understand the, the ascension better. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the powerful promise that is the ascension of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, you would guide us as you are called to do, as is your ministry, into all truth. That we would come to a deeper, fuller, richer understanding of the gospel. That we might live the promises each and every day. That we might boldly go into the world knowing, Heavenly Father, that you provide for all of our needs. Lord Jesus, that you are in control of all things. And we can be confident in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray amen and amen in this passage of scripture and throughout scripture as we think about the ascension of Jesus Christ we can see that the ascension communicates three really important things for us first and foremost what we see even in this passage of scripture is that Christ's ascension actually adjusts our attention When we come to the beginning of this passage of scripture, what we find is Jesus has been teaching, he's been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And as they are going up this mountain, the Mount uh, of Olives, they're asking Jesus the question, Lord, is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So now think about that for a second. Where are their minds? Where is their attention? We understand that the ancient Israelites expected the person of the Messiah to be an earthly king, someone who would come and would establish an earthly kingdom. And the disciples are continuing in this strain. It is what they had always known and understood. And so their minds are focused here specifically on an earthly kingdom of power and prominence for national Israel. And Jesus not only rebukes them in what he says with this gentle redirection that says, that's really none of your business. Just summarize that verse. It's none of your business. Leave it up to the Father. But he also readjusts their focus by his actions as he redirects them to a different heavenward, heavenly, eternal, and glorious perspective. Think about it. We see here in the next verses what happens is that Jesus is lifted up in their presence. He is lifted up and he is taken into heaven. And so by this very action, he literally, as he is taken up in front of them, he lifts their eyes physically, but then also we understand spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, metaphorically. He elevates their attention. He elevates their eyes. He draws their attention upward and into eternity, refocusing the eyes of their hearts and the eyes of their bodies onto a greater reality as it is functionally reminding them of what he said in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. You're concerned about a kingdom of Israel and Jesus repeatedly told Pilate in that passage of Scripture in John 18, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then people would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of Jesus Christ that God is going to establish is not only of this world, it's not even from this world. And so Jesus, by his ascension and the Lord, by the ascension of Jesus Christ, refocuses them on the establishment, not of an earthly temporary kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom that is still yet to come. It lifts our focus up to something that is greater than any geopolitical power or even any local body of believers, any local manifestation of the church. But not only is he lifted up and not only does he elevate their attentions, he is taken by a cloud. Maybe you've often thought, and what's been presented as people preach through this passage of Scripture, that Jesus is just simply lifted up into the sky until he's covered covered with the clouds. And maybe your past history of the ascension is simply, that's it, that what this is meant to be is just a very clear indication that Jesus is not going to be coming and going anymore. He's gone. But stop and think about this. Have you ever been maybe at a funeral or you've been walking through a theme park with your child and they get a balloon, right? Or maybe you've been at a funeral, like I said, and they release balloons into the air on behalf of this this person as a memorial, and you stand there, your kid loses the balloon, or you release the balloon in this act of celebration, and you sit and you watch this balloon go higher and higher and higher and higher until it's just this tiny little speck in the clouds. Is that really what Luke is trying to communicate here? That they stood and watched Jesus just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until he was how many miles into the air that he has to be before he's actually among the clouds? That really can't be what Luke is trying to communicate. And what we find when we look throughout the rest of Scripture is that clouds mean something and indicate something of a spiritual nature. Clouds throughout the Bible often appear in a time that we are what we call a theophany. A theophany throughout Scripture is an appearance or a manifestation of God and His glory. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament in the wilderness when the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and the Lord would regularly appear as either a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. We also see it when God spoke with Moses at Mount Sinai, when God spoke with Moses in the tabernacle. He came and He descended on Mount Sinai in a cloud. When Moses built the tabernacle, and later when Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple as of a cloud. When Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory of his eternal personhood, the Son of God, was allowed to shine through his mortal body as Peter and James and John saw him in some measure of his glorified state. The Bible tells us that he was surrounded by a cloud and out of the cloud, God spoke. So what Luke is wanting to communicate to each and every one of us is that as Jesus is enraptured by this cloud, as he is taken up by this cloud, it's not a rain cloud, a cumulus cloud or anything like that. It's the glory cloud of God. It is the sign that he is being embraced and welcomed back into that position that he held long before the foundation of the world as the second person of the Trinity, God in all of his glory. Jesus has been taken up not into the sky, but into glory. And so in that, he redirects our focus not on some earthly realm. And not on some merely earthly victory, but he wants us to refocus ourselves on the glory of the Lord and focus us on this eternal reality of the kingdom of God. And so two points of application of the fact that Jesus Christ adjusts our attention are this. First, this reminds us that God has bigger plans than any geopolitical nation. It is really easy, brothers and sisters, especially as we come up into another election year, and there's election year after election year after election year, for us to get so worked up over the turmoil in our nation, over the turmoil in our world in Europe and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But we have to realize that God's plans are bigger than the United States. It's bigger than Russia. It's bigger than Ukraine. It's bigger than any other nation because all of the nations will cease to exist when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. God has an eternal perspective beyond our problems. Socially, politically, culturally, everything else. God has us wants us to focus on a bigger, more eternal, more glorious perspective than here and now. And the second point of that is that it's a specific reminder to those of us who are part of a church that has such a rich history and legacy of 212 years to realize, hey, that is a great legacy and one that we should be proud of and we should guard and we should respect. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when you look at the Bible and you read about the churches of Ephesus and Corinth and Sparta And Laodicea, none of them are around today. These historic churches that Paul started, that Timothy shepherded, they're gone. Because there's only one church, Christ's church. And we must be about the building of his kingdom, not merely our own. And that's a warning not only to us, but to every single church, that God has a greater plan than our country, than our church. So we have to hold every single one of them with an open hand. We have to lift our eyes from the kingdoms we want to build for ourselves, the kingdoms that the apostles were looking to build for themselves, and seek God's purpose, God's kingdom. We have to allow the ascension of Jesus Christ to adjust our attention. But beyond that, the ascension of Jesus Christ promises our provision, you see, the ascension frees us to stop living and fighting and striving for the, so that we, for the glory of ourselves and of anything less than God and frees us to know that because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus is doing, he provides for everything that we need. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 here, he promises the disciples that they are to go and they are to wait and they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, we're going to discuss the arrival and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in another couple of weeks when we celebrate Pentecost. But what we have to see from this passage of Scripture and from the rest of Scripture is that the ascension of Jesus was necessary before the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually says this in John 16. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus actually says that it is better that he go away. You know, there's often that question, I even thought about it the other day, and there's a question that is often asked, if you could speak to one historical person, if you could sit across one historical, from the the table, from one historical person and interview them, ask them, just meet with them, who would it be? And obviously the church answer, the, 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 the easy answer is, well, just Jesus, Duh. But I stopped and I thought about that and I said, according and I thought about this passage of scripture, and that according to Jesus Christ, the Spirit is good enough and even better. And when we spend our lives thinking, yes, on the person of Jesus, and we will one day be in his, heaven, in his presence, but when we live in a way that we neglect the person and the power and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives we look past him to Jesus, we're missing a really beautiful, powerful place. We're missing a beautiful, powerful relationship. Because Jesus says, it's better that I leave and the Spirit come. Because the Spirit inside of us is better than Jesus beside us. As he leads us into all truth, as he ministers to us, Jesus repeatedly taught Not only that he was going away, but it would be better for us if he did. This is because it would be from his ascended state, not only that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, but that he would do so much more. See, Jesus declared our salvation is finished on the cross. It is bought. It is paid for. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is finished in his ministry. And when we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we find out that Jesus is busy right now. First off, he is busy as our mediator In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, the author of Hebrews says, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The presence of Jesus Christ physically in the throne room of God as the perfect high priest. And the perfect mediator, sitting down and resting from all of his labors, is the declaration that you and I are secure in our salvation. He is there to mediate this new covenant, to constantly plead on our behalf. That's actually another thing that the Bible tells us, both in Hebrews and in Romans. Paul says in Romans, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is actively at the right hand of the Father, not lounging in some recliner with his feet up, but constantly interceding for us when we fail, cheering us on as he continues to be the presence in the place of God's holiness, such that we are in Christ and at the right hand of the Father. His presence in eternity as the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father is the guarantee of our salvation. And from that position, he also provides for all of our needs. Acts 2, verse 33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, He gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Acts 5, 31. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And also in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. It's the Holy Spirit who infuses us with gifts, but it's Jesus Christ who who sent the Spirit in the first place. It's Jesus Christ who sits there as the one who is over the process in which he provides for all of our needs. As he intercedes on our behalf when we stumble and when we fall, whose presence right there before the Lord is a constant reminder that our sins have been paid for as he sits there in his glorified state, even with his wounds and his scars. Jesus is busy. Right here, right now, in his ascended state, in heaven. And that's the ascension of Jesus that is the grounds for all of our hope, both now and in the future. Now in the sense that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that because heaven is a real place, I'm sorry, future hope. The future hope is that because Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, to a real place, that is the place where we are going. It's not just some spiritual reality. It's not just some theological concept. It's not just this ethereal hope or wish or dream. But because what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when we are away from the body, we are with the Lord. And where is the Lord? The Lord is in heaven. There is a hope that we have a destination, a place that we are going. Jesus Christ being in the presence of God is a promise for our future hope that this life is not all that there is, and there is a place that we are going to. But our present hope, getting back to that, our present hope is that the gospel isn't just merely good news for the past. It's good news for the present, for all of those who are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is actively working on our behalf, even as he sits at the right hand of the Father to secure our salvation. When we know that Jesus is there, present, and pleading for us, we can have confidence That no matter what we do today, even when we fail, that Jesus is active on our behalf to plead our cause, to plead our case, to plead His blood in front of the Lord. And so we don't have to question our salvation. We can understand that Jesus is active on our behalf. We can understand that beyond just that, Jesus is giving what we need such that Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not only can we be secure in the promise of our salvation, we can also be secure that God is going to make provision for all that we need each and every day to live obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can look to him as the provider of every single day what we need, not only financially, but also spiritually, in our character, in our lives, in our relationship. Jesus is constantly providing for us. Just because he's gone doesn't mean that he isn't working. He's actually working on our behalf. And because we know that he is working, we are invited to follow him into that work. You see, this passage of Scripture, and the ascension in general doesn't merely adjust our attention upward to an eternal and to a glorious and to a heavenly direction. It doesn't merely promise our provision. It actually is the motivation for our mission. What we see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus, not only does he say, God's kingdom is none of your business of when it's going to happen. But he says instead, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in verses 10 through 11, we find this interesting thing where we have to be a little bit sympathetic with the disciples. If I'm standing there and I watch Jesus just lift up off of the ground and then be clothed in a cloud of glory and I'm looking up, I'm probably going to be a little bit awestruck. Which is why it seems a little bit weird that these angels appear out of nowhere and basically give them a good kick in the rear and says, get your mind out of the clouds and get back to work. Jesus' ascension motivates our mission. It drives us beyond just this theological education. It, be, it drives us beyond just this trap of seeing our experience as Christians, just as being this growth in knowledge and understanding. It can be really easy and really tempting. When I was in college, I loved nothing more than to sit around a fire with a group of my friends and just debate theological concepts all day long. Talk about soteriology and ecclesiology and eschatology and all of theologies, And just live in this, this intellectual experience and be engaged in this growth and understanding. But what Paul warns us is knowledge puffs up. You see, knowledge without purpose, understanding without mission, is a recipe for arrogance and pride. And God warns us against that. Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is about more than our belief, it's about our obedience. A disciple is not one who has simply prayed a prayer and now stands around staring into the sky waiting for Jesus' return. A Christian who is is someone who has understood. And responded to Jesus' call, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's why we say our mission statement isn't just simply we are here to make, shape, and send disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's true. We're here to make, shape, and send faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Because that's Jesus' invitation to the disciples, follow me. Come and follow me. Not just trailing behind him in the way that he goes, but learning from him and engaging in the same things, the same mission, the same ministry that he was engaged in to seek and save that which was lost. That is the mission that has been left to you and to me. And when we spend our times in this spiritual navel gazing or heaven stargazing, when we aren't busy about the broken, reaching the broken world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're reducing Christianity to something that it isn't. And Jesus isn't in that. We need to understand the truth and the doctrine of Scripture, but it is about so much more than that. We are to be his witnesses in every corner of the earth. The question, though, is what keeps us from doing that? Simple. Simple why don't we share the gospel more often, boils down to fear. Fear that I don't know enough. Fear that they aren't going to respond the right way. Fear that that I'm going to mess this thing up somehow. Fear that really it's so beyond me. I don't know how in the world I'm supposed to go take the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone. I'm afraid to strike up a conversation with someone. I'm afraid of these different things. It could be a myriad of other issues, but I think the biggest one is that it is fear that keeps us on the sidelines and out of the fields that Jesus says are white with harvest. So what is it that overcomes that fear? Was there a time in your life maybe when you had to give a speech or you had to perform, maybe as a child at school? Or maybe you can think about a time when you can see a picture in your mind that child who's about ready to give a performance or to give a speech, and you can tell that they're nervous and they're nervously looking through the crowd until such time as they lock their eyes on that one person. Maybe it's mom, maybe it's dad, maybe it's friend, maybe it's their coach, maybe it's their teacher who gives them that reassuring smile and that thumbs up that all of a sudden just allows that child to just breathe for a moment. Or maybe you've seen a courtroom drama and you've got that lawyer who is nervously waiting because he knows that he's got the witness that is the key to making all of this thing fall together, to make his case. And he's nervously waiting because he doesn't know whether or not that witness is going to get there until that moment when someone from his staff walks in and gives him the thumbs up, gives him the nod that says he's here, he's ready to testify. And all of a sudden, all of those nerves just go away and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt it's in the bag. I don't have to be nervous anymore. It's all there. It's all come together. The ascension of Jesus Christ gives us that courage. Because throughout the Bible, what the Bible teaches us beyond anything else, the most important truth of the scriptures and the most important truth about the ascension is that because Jesus Christ has ascended, because he is seated at the right hand of the the throne and the right hand of the Father, he's in charge. All the way back in Psalm, chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's one of the most often quoted verses in all of the New Testament. This declaration and this assurance that because Jesus Christ has been raised, because Jesus Christ has ascended, he is now in charge. Ephesians 1, 20 and 22. That he wor- The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Peter says in First Peter chapter 3, who has gone into heaven, referring to Jesus, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Everything is put under the feet of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that is more powerful than Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can upset the plans or the purposes or the power of Jesus Christ. Which is why in Matthew, when Matthew talks about the Great Commission, and Jesus introduces this mission to his disciples, he introduces it with this. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So if Jesus is in charge... If Jesus is on the throne, if Jesus can't be knocked off that throne, if Jesus is there and he's providing for all of our needs, if Jesus is there providing us with the hope of eternity in him, why should we be afraid? What is there that can stop him? What is there to stop us? And so the invitation is to stop staring into the sky and be his witnesses. Following after Jesus Christ as fishers of men, just as he called the disciples to be. And there's a warning attached to this because the angels say, stop looking into heaven, but know that he's coming back in the same way. If you've watched one of those suspenseful movies, an action flick, and there's a bomb that's about ready to go off. It was Alfred Hitchcock who was the first one who introduced the, the picture, the image of the, the clock on the bomb as the clock is ticking down and he's cutting back and forth to the action. And he knew, he, he created that, that, that sense of tension that is just infused into the audience when they understand what is happening is under a timeline, There's a time limit to this. And if they don't get it done in time, they'll lose. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is on the throne and he's coming again. And we don't know when that's going to be. It could be now. Okay, it wasn't now. It could be this week. It could be five years from now. It could be 150 years from now. Every generation of Christians has thought that Jesus' return was imminent. The people that are out there, the doomsayers that are saying, the world's coming to an end. Yes, it is. Jesus is coming back. Yes, he is. And every generation of Christians have believed that it's going to happen in their generation. Why? Because it is imminent. He is coming. He is returning. And so what that should do is not give us pause to just stand and wait and stare, but to be busy about the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. To be urgent in what we are saying. To be urgent in our own growth in discipleship, in our own maturity. To be urgent about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with every single person that is around us, because when Jesus returns and he does establish that kingdom and all that is wrong is made right, that is the end of the opportunity for anyone to repent and believe and be saved. And we are his instruments now to be his mouthpiece in the world, his witnesses to all that we know to be true. So we don't need to fear. When I was playing baseball, There's a strategy to the game. And you get up to that batter's box and you look down at the third baseline coach and you look for the signal. Coach, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to wait? Take the the pitch? See what it is? Do you want me to bunt so that I can sacrifice? There would always be that signal. That signal was just swing away. Just let it fly. When we understand that Jesus didn't merely die, that he wasn't merely just raised, but that he was ascended and sat down at the throne of the universe, we can have confidence in our lives to swing away, to try and fail, to try and succeed, to live as those who can walk the tightrope knowing that if we fall, there's a safety net. So my encouragement to you is swing away. Swing away, child of God. Get busy about the work. Get busy about the ministry. Get busy about the mission. Serving the Lord and declaring the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that doesn't stop with the death of Jesus Christ, doesn't stop with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but swings all the way through to the ascension of Jesus Christ and the promised return. See the beauty of the full motion of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you and for me and for the world. And if you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you know what, there's never been a moment where you can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is interceding for me and I am seated with him because I have trusted in him for my salvation, now is the time. Because again, there's a limit and the clock is ticking and Jesus will return. My invitation and my urging is start right now. Cry out to Jesus Christ. For salvation, for sanctification, for transformation. Because we worship a crucified, risen, ascended, and returning Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.